Welcome to the ALT Insider Podcast, dedicated to making you have the most fun possible while living or dreaming about living in Japan. Whether you've been here for years or are just starting to consider it, we've got you covered. And now, your host, broadcasting from somewhere in Japan, James. James here, coming at you with episode number 135 of the ALT Insider Podcast. Nice to have you here with me this week for another edition of the show. Got to mention, as always, ALT Insider Podcast is a proud member, a card-carrying. There is no card, but if there was, I would be carrying it. A card-carrying member of the Japan Podcast Network. You could find that network, which is filled with all other podcasts that are t- about Japan in some way, at japanpodcastnetwork.com. Go there. Okay? What else do I need to say? Site news. Hey, we had a post this week. That's something new, right? We had a post, a guest post, from... The man, the two-time podcast guest, Higgins in Japan. And he has a great one. He has one that would help so many people. I think the, the Teaching in Japan Reddit subreddit would, would go out of business if people listened to this, his advice. And it's, it's all about the five questions to ask a dispatch company before you work for them. I'm just kidding, by the way. Teaching in Japan subreddit. You guys are awesome, fam. But, you know, there's a lot of questions that have to do with this kind of stuff. Like, oh, I just, you know, my company's not paying me in August. What does that mean? My, my company paid me half in December. What's that mean? Of course, if, if you don't know that stuff kind of the, the stuff is coming, it's going to be a big shock to you, right? About dispatch companies working in Japan as an ALT. If you do your research and ask these questions, you know, you won't be as surprised at some of the things. And it won't seem as bad as it is, right? It won't seem as bad as if you didn't know, for sure, you know? Like, that's why I, I think my time in Japan as, as, a, as a dispatch ALT for six years was fine. Interact, the, the, the interact, the one that you know, people have strong opinions about. They did everything they said they were going to do, and uh, I have no problems with them. So, you know, so you can also get that 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 plane of existence where you understand that dispatch company, yeah, it's not the best job in the world, but they offer these things, and you can ex- choose to accept or deny that what they offer you to work in Japan. If you know everything, you can make an educated. Decision, and then hopefully you can have a happy time working in Japan. Because working as an ALT in Japan is fun. Working as a dispatch company ALT is fun. Is it the best job? No, but it's still fun. It's a part. It was a big part of my stepping stone in Japan, and I hope it could be a stepping stone for hundreds of other people out there. That maybe go direct hire, maybe do something else, maybe go to translation, whatever. But it's a great stepping stone. It has to exist for people like me and a lot of other people to do what they want to do in Japan, whether that's teaching, translating, having a website, a stupid website, you know. Quick note, good luck to Jet Hopefuls. You know, and the, um, you know, I think now almost all the deadlines have passed, maybe not UK yet, but good luck to that. My quick advice to you is go live your life, right? Study Japanese is a good idea, but go live your life. Don't get stuck, hung up on this, stuck on, you know, is Jet going to come back? If Jet loves you, they'll come back to you, right? You let your application go. You send it away to the, 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 the elves of Jet, and the, those elves are going to get your application. Read through it. Make a decision. And if it comes back to you, it was meant to be, right? Let your application go. Once it's gone, Forget about it. If it loves you, it'll come back. All right, guys, remember that. But as for this show today, the reason we're all here, huge guest, huge, huge guest, Hiko Simon, someone that you know I've known for over ten years. As I say in the interview, I did some research trying to find out when I first like you know first come to know of Hiko Simon, a legendary YouTuber, Japan YouTuber. And eight nine years ago, I had a comment on one of the videos that was very embarrassing. If you want to find it, find it. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. But you know, the best show about the best part of having a podcast, you know, now that I'm doing it for almost three years now, kind of got more used to how it goes and things. And the best part of it is you can really invite only the people that you want to invite on your show and talk to people that you always want to talk to. 
like for me when i before i got to japan and then right after it was a huge part of my japan life i was you know alone not a lot of friends yet in japan i was kind of figuring out my place in japan and youtube was a place i went to find you know how people live in japan successful ways people learn japanese stuff like that and you know so far think about the people i've had on the show i've had on my argonauts jason huge channel i watch koichi from tofugu huge channel that i watched unrested scott ackerman watched lots of his stuff you know, Kevin from Just Japan Podcast, Busan Kevin as he was then. A lot of people. I mean, and also, let's not forget, I got some newer guy people too that, you know, of course I haven't watched as much because they're newer, but, you know, Kara from Car Adventures, Spot from Spot Goes, Chad Zimmerman, Charlie No Seikatsu. I guess I wrote these down because I don't want to forget about anybody. So I guess shut up. Higgins in Japan, of course, guest post master, Higgins in Japan, Tino, Chicano 2 teacher, Jake Knowlton. I've had a lot of YouTubers on here because for me, you know, YouTube was a big part of my living in Japan life. So obviously I've had a lot of them on there and they have a lot of information. So hopefully it can help you too in some way. But uh, yeah, Hiko is now, li you know, mainly a live streamer these days, but uh, he has hundreds of videos that are definitely worth checking out. And they kind of lean towards the learning to speak Japanese more than anything else. But there's a lot of stuff in there. So, of course, the link to his site is his, uh, his YouTube channel will be on the show notes page. But if you haven't checked it out, then I don't know. You're doing something wrong. So go check it out first and then come back here and listen to this episode. Without further ado, let's get to it. Long intro this week. I don't know what happened. But let's get to it. My interview with Hiko Simon. Enjoy. All right, guys. Very special guest here. His name is Hiko Simon. That's all I need to say because I know you know who I'm talking about. Original OG of Japan YouTube for sure. How are you doing today, Hiko? I'm good. How are you? Very nice to talk to you. I, I was doing some research for the show and I found a comment <laughs> I left for one of your videos over nine years ago. I'm not going to read yeah. that comment because it's just total trash. Nine years ago. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I want to say you, you helped me a lot through my time in Japan before I got to Japan even too. So thanks for that. And I'm really excited to talk to you tonight. Wow. Okay. Well, great, great to talk to you. And also, I've enjoyed sort of interacting with you on Twitter and whatnot. So it's nice to actually talk to you for the first time voice to voice. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm going to try not to ask all the questions that people can find out in your stuff already because, you know, uh, it's tough. Believe me, no one wants to go through my stuff. So no, I'm quite happy to make it easy. Okay. So let's start with the the, the, uh, the question I start with every person I interview here. Yeah. Uh, so there was once a time you weren't interested in Japan and then there became a time you were interested in Japan. So what was kind of the switch for you that got you interested in Japan in the first place? Um, China. <laughs> I wanted to learn Chinese. Um, so I, I suppose what really triggered it was as a kid, I lived in Singapore and I lived in a very Chinese sort of neighborhood in Singapore, um, New Zealand. My dad was in the army and we used to be in, be in a base in Singapore, but we, we had to live inside a Singaporean base. So the neighborhood that we were living in was really sort of old fashioned Chinese neighborhood. And I always wanted, even after going back to New Zealand and I always wanted to be able to read all the kanji and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the chances in Chinese never came up, but uh, Japanese came up, and it turned out they had kanji too. So uh, I kind of learned it as a poor alternative, and somewhere along the way, after I took a few trips to uh, school trips to Fukuoka and whatnot, I thought, you know, maybe maybe Japan's cool as well. So I pretty much just sort of fell into it by default as the closest thing to China and then discovered somewhere along the way it was actually I actually quite liked it. Well, that's interesting. So it wasn't like some kind of lifelong dream. It kind of, you kind of, so you said you went to school there. So the college thing or high school thing? Or how'd you, how, when did that work? I was in, well, so when I was in high school in New Zealand, uh, just around that time in the bubble, you might remember that was like when the movie Rising Sun came out and everyone was expecting that uh, – you know, with with the bubble that by now, you know, it'd be like Blade Runner, like everyone would be speaking quasi-Japanese and economically taken over by, by the Japanese. Uh -huh. So in preparation for our Japanese overlords, the New Zealand government told everyone to learn Japanese now really fast. 
Uh, funnily enough, they're not teaching Japanese anymore. They're teaching Chinese. Uh, but yes, I got caught up in the we're about to be taken over by Japan phase. And uh, yeah, my school had like uh, every, every school in New Zealand had exchanges and so on. So we had school trips and Japanese was taught, taught as a subject. So then, you know, you kind of you go to Japan. You're obviously pretty excited about it. Then you decide, OK, I really want to do this for real. Yeah. Uh, what kind of steps did you take to really make it happen to actually live and work over here? Um. So the first thing is is that New Zealand uh, New Zealand's a very small country. I mean, we're the same size as Japan, like ge geographically, but we're like uh, you know we've got like four million people and fifty million sheep. You know, and, and, and if you're interested in doing non-sheep related professions, uh, which is like ninety five percent of the country, you know, we all leave. Um, I always explain it to people. People ask, why would you leave a nice place like New Zealand? And I'd say, well, you know. Uh, if you could imagine growing up in a place like Idaho or Saga Prefecture or someplace like that, you know, they're really nice places, but, but what in the hell are you supposed to do there? Um, yep. So it's sort of like most people, everyone leaves New Zealand 100%, and it's actually part of the culture. We call it the OE, the Overseas Experience. And people start planning that, like even junior high and stuff like that. People pretty much make up their minds. They're going to London, they're going to America, they're going to Australia. Um, so I guess Japan seemed like the route best traveled. Um, but... Um, I pretty much made up my mind by the time I was 15 or 16 that sometime around when I was 23 I'd go to Japan. So I, I just did a bunch of stuff building up to that. Like when I was at university, I, I took Japanese as a subject um, at university where I discovered uh, I sucked and I dropped out. Um, but that, that was going to interfere with the plan I made when I was 16. So I um, I kind of took extra measures. I, I, I found some people who were very good at Japanese who worked at a uh, um, uh, they worked at a Japanese souvenir shop that was uh, sort of downtown in Auckland. Uh, and so I got I got a job there, which uh, got me lots of Japanese working holiday, Japanese friends. Um, I moved into an apartment, which all had like Japanese people in them, like you know, 12 Japanese surfers and uh, a Japanese chef. And I uh, got the Japanese girlfriend thing. And even as I, when I was living in that apartment full of Japanese people, the house didn't have a TV antenna on it. So you couldn't watch like regular New Zealand TV, but they did have an international video player, and all the Japanese guys would get these uh, Japanese video cassettes and uh, VCDs sent over. So inside the house, it was like perfectly Japanese. We spoke Japanese, we watched um, Japanese movies, we shopped at the Japanese supermarket, we watched Japanese TV. Uh, I went to Japanese karaoke once a month. So even you know without like the convenience of the internet and everything to make that easier today. Outside of my, my classes at university, I was leading pretty much a Japanese life in New Zealand already, just trying to get as prepared as possible. And, you know, right after university, I, I sort of came out to Japan on the off chance I could find something. And I did. And that was it. Wow. We, we shouldn't gloss over that, though. You, I mean, that's some big steps you took to go to the shop and say, I want to work here just to work my Japanese. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a step a lot of people don't take. You know what I mean? Like, I want to learn Japanese. Let me get some Mina no Nihongo books, and that's it. You know what I mean? So. That's something to learn from Hiko here is uh, he took the action steps to make it happen for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, not to play up the how, how I walked barefoot 20 miles through the snow to milk a thousand cows <laughs> kind of story. But, you know, uh, it is kind of funny when I, when, I, when I get people nowadays telling me it's so hard to find ways to practice Japanese. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, I mean, you know, it, now if, if you want to do it, there's so many thousands of avenues. Uh, so you said you came over here on a work visa and then got a job. So were you just going door to door to, to companies and saying, here's my resume, hire me? Or what, did, what did kind of steps did you take there? More or less, I, t I basically, you know, took every, every step available. So I was... Um, 
uh, at that time I was at law school and I was planning to go to a law firm in New Zealand for a few years and then come out. But uh, my, my plans were slightly modified by having a Japanese girlfriend that uh, I wanted to come back over and see. So I thought I'd have a good shot to see what I could find. And um, I kind of went around every contact I had in New Zealand that was already working at a law firm or something like that, um, that had a partner law firm in Japan. I kind of put out the word in there. I actually summer clerked at a Japanese law firm through a connection in a New Zealand law firm. And when I went over the next time, uh, I, again, there was some, uh, through a family friend, uh, they, they knew someone who was at a Japanese consulting company. And uh, they said, uh, go talk to this guy and see if he can introduce you to law firms or see if he can, you know, connect you to anything um, just to see what's around. And it was when I went to talk to that guy. Um, I, I'd already practiced like Kegel. I, 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 I'd studied focus study, like uh, interviewing Japanese as a, as a university subject for a year. So I was actually pretty good at speaking, uh, deceptively good. And when I went to talk to that guy about looking at, for jobs at law firms, he actually said, why don't you work here? Uh, and I was like, sure. And uh, apparently, and that was pretty much it. I didn't have to go through any other sort of interviews. So it kind of worked out kind of fast. And it's like, geez, you're not going to turn that down. But I remember as I walked out of that room and went across the road and kind of sit, sat down for a moment, I felt like the whole world was like falling away from me. It suddenly hit me. Oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> Uh, and I stayed pretty much in that state for the next three years. <laughs> so just for reference, I mean, people out there, you know, wondering, they want to get other jobs that aren't teaching English. What you say, Could you say on a scale how your Japanese was at this point? I mean, we're talking N2 level, N1 level. What were you speaking at? I would say I was about N2. I hadn't, I hadn't obtained N2. It took me about a year after I got to Japan to get N2. But I'd studied two years at university, and I was – I, I was pretty good at speaking by that point. My, my, my reading and writing wasn't up to my speaking level. Speaking-wise, I was comfortably into maybe N1. Reading, writing, I was a little bit below into perhaps, but all I was all, all I was doing was speaking. Okay, yeah. So just so people, you know, people get scared, like I have to have N1 to get these kind of jobs. That's just not the case. No, 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 no. N one is really to differentiate. It's like one. It's almost impossible to get N one if you're not in Japan, just because it's so much memorization of stuff that you're never going to use except uh, in Japan. Yep. Uh, and really, N1 is just used to differentiate. It's like, it's like to validate that this person is really as good as they say they are or that they're as good a Japanese as you can get. It's actually kind of a pointless exam as an exam. Yeah. Uh, and it took me years to get it. I failed N1 three times, even even living here. I failed twice so far. <laughs> Congratulations. I'll catch up to you someday. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, you know, I got to ask you because, you know, in this year to part of the calendar, jet, new Jets are, are, are kind of making their applications. They're getting excited about going to Japan. And the emails I get are always, yes. how do I study Japanese? So. You as someone that's obviously advanced in Japanese, and uh, you kind of talked a little bit about that. But what kind of advice would you give someone that's you know still back in America, ready to go to Japan on jet? Any advice you give them to kind of get a jump start in their Japanese study? Uh, yeah, two things I guess. The first thing is, um, you know, be be resourceful. Be go, I, I guess telling people to be like MacGyver. And now MacGyver hasn't been on TV for thirty years, so maybe I can't say that. But pretty much. Um, scrounge up every try try to create I mean what I did was I tried to create as much as possible uh, a situation where I was immersed in Japanese um, whenever I was at home I mean you know you've got movies you've got music you've got radio uh, people talk about how when they come to Japan and I found this just having the TV on all the time just with the background sound of Japanese it just gets you used to the sound and everything I mean there's a, there is a degree of osmosis from that and, and I know people you know say that well where I live there are no Japanese people and that was a real problem 20 years ago but nowadays you know you don't you, you don't need that to be able to access Japanese media I mean me I had to import parcels of VC you know VHS videos and, and buy a thousand dollar international video player now you can just watch it on YouTube so the first thing is I think try to immerse yourself with media and the second thing is again online 
There's so many opportunities now to actually interact with people through the internet. Um, find ways to find, seek out real people. There are plenty of Japanese who, you know, um, want to talk to foreigners and so on. Um, so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways, but yeah, trying to find real people to interact with, uh, friends to make. Uh, for, if you're not in Japan yet, I've been mean, definitely just, just go crazy using the internet to try to create a virtual Japan. Yeah, I would say if, if you want to, you can. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. so many ways. But, uh, okay, so that, that's kind of, I take care of the people listening. Uh, the, the questions for the people listening, I took care of those. Now it's time for me to ask questions that I want to learn from you. Yeah. Uh, as a, you know, longtime uh, YouTube watcher of the JVlog community. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, what kind of made you start start YouTube? When you were starting, I mean, the guys around you were what, Tokyo Kuni and those kind of people when you started or was that before your time yeah so they they were ahead of me but yes they were the ones who were around they were they, they were the big bosses so what kind of made you kind of join the join the crew you really started early with the, the japanese kind of learning content correct yeah yeah well so the way it really started out was um so going back a long ways when i got to japan and i was you know the only glazing in the village uh it, 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 kind, kind, i was in tokyo but in the companies i was in for the first few years i didn't have that much english interaction i've always been a bit of a news geek um, so I found uh, sites like uh, Japan Today when they were brand new and the, the comment forums on the sort of Japan news threads, I found there were, I mean, there were various tribes on that site and, you know, I don't, I don't really use it very much anymore. But in those days, you had the, the other only gaijins in the villages in various locations also on that site. Um, and, and I made a lot of sort of friends through that socially. And, and, and I guess when YouTube sort of came up, I, I, a couple of, you know, the people, it was kind of funny around 2006, 2007, every, it was brand new and everyone was still trying to figure out, like, you know, how, how to do YouTube. And I think I originally was just watching um, Daily Show and stuff like that, the illegal uploads. And when those all got shut down by the Viacom lawsuit, I, I started to wonder, well, what do people really watch? It wasn't through an awareness of the JVlog community. It was watch, through watching some American vloggers like um, uh, Philip DeFranco and people like that. Um, who would do videos, kind of entertaining, funny, humorous videos, talking about various news stories that they liked. And I thought, well, this is, this would be a really fun way to take, you know, my, ho my, my hobby of typing on the internet and just seeing. And I was curious, how do they make videos like that? And it wasn't until after I started making videos, I actually became aware um, of uh, Victor, Give Me a Break Man, and uh, Tokyo Kuni, and those people who are already sort of up there and uh, with, with, with a big... Um, yeah, we're, we're the big uh, J, J vloggers, and I sort of connected with them through a couple of the J, uh, J vlog parties or the Japan YouTuber parties that happened. Um, man, right, right in the first couple of years of YouTube, actually. Yeah, yeah, and then I mean, then it grew, grew from there, and it kind of reached a big peak. I feel like it was like a lot of it was a huge thing. J vlogging was huge, huge. And now, since then, it's kind of went down. I would say, and in, in, in at least amount of people doing it. Would you agree with that? It's, it's changed. Um, you know, I think when I started, it was just around the time of the Google acquisition. Um, and, and really, even back then, it was still really a, a social network with video. Um, so there were guys like Tokyo Kuni who believed that it should be like a video production medium and distribution medium. He was a bit of a head of, he was actually very much ahead of the curve with the way that he thought. Whereas you have guys like Victor, uh, you know, give me a break, man, who were um, people who thought it's really primarily a social network and, you know, a community. Um, and, and the parties, you know, again, there the, were the different sort of angles on it. Everyone was trying to figure it out. But it really was primarily social um, back yeah. in those days. There was no monetization. Um, you know, for the first few years, we were doing it where and people were complaining YouTube's getting money and, and we're not producing content for them. Um, so I think it made sense in the end that Google started monetizing everything. And then they became serious about trying to make it more into, a, you know, a serious video 
network and so on and making it advertising friendly, but maybe perhaps the more professional and the more polished it's become. The two things that have really changed are that one, Google's become more serious about it uh, and about trying to promote, you know, Japanese talent and so on. And Japanese YouTubers are not the same sort of, um, they're not the same sort of beast as foreign YouTubers in Japan. Foreign YouTubers in Japan are people on this great adventure that they're having and, you know, they're sort of naturally sort of gregarious. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Japanese are very much the traditional mold of, of YouTubers anywhere in the world. They're, they're, they're lonely people in the basement, um, you know, trying to... <laughs> I mean, I remember Hikaking when he was like a, a nervous... Um, you know, I mean, he wasn't even like the number one beatboxer on YouTube, you know, back when there were only three beatboxers on YouTube and he would show up at the parties and he was awkward and nervous. And I talked to him a couple of times and he said, yeah, I've got a plan. And I think he's making now more than a million a year. He's the top YouTuber in Japan, but you know, who, yeah, yeah. Kind of who would have thought, but, but one thing is that, yeah, it got more policy. The other thing is that the, um, the, um, I think new YouTubers now, in the old days, it was a big thing. If you were a new YouTuber, you would kind of want to lock in with the community and rely on the, the social network and the community aspect of it to pick up your channel. So it was just inherently very, very social. Um, whereas now, people are coming straight into it where they're already making really great quality, highly produced videos. They've already got an idea of wanting to create their own brand on Instagram and YouTube and, you know, try, trying to get people to sponsor them and stuff like that. So they're not even, they don't really care about the social stuff so much. So it's not so much that there are fewer. I think there are more people, but I think people are just really doing their own thing more nowadays. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you kept going for how long? And it's pretty amazing, <laughs> you know, to keep it going. I mean, you've seen how many people have you seen come and go? You know, it's your time. <laughs> it's also part of being a foreigner in Japan that you see people come and go. I, I think people right. are staying longer now. It really used to be back in the old days that, you know, people wouldn't really stay for more than two or three years. Um, and it would become this thing. Everyone would go through the cycle where after three years, if you only had Gaijin friends, after about three years, all your Gaijin friends have left. And then you'll feel like it's your turn. Whereas now people are staying for longer. Um, but yeah, yeah, people definitely come and go. But there have been a lot of people who started around the same time that I was there, like Tikyo Sam and, you know, Victor's been around forever. And, you know, a lot of people are still there. But yeah, you've seen different waves. I want to get your comment on, uh, you know, one of the best, back in the day, one of the best was Roger Swan. And I know oh, you yeah. met him. Any still good stories about him? I mean, he, he, his <laughs> videos are awesome. I mean, I wish I could have met him for sure. You know what? I was the first YouTube party that I ever went to where I met everybody he was at. But I wasn't really aware of him. I became more aware of him after the party. And it was because people would make videos of each other at this party. And then you'd find out, oh, they're tagging everybody. And instead of became, I became aware of who he was. But I, other than meeting him once at that first party, which was like the first party where I met Tokyo Kuni, where I connected with so many people, I followed him after that. But I never really knew him. Um, but he was he, he was one of the what, what I'd consider the first generation. He was up there with Tokyo Kuni and, uh, and, and Victor is sort of the first wave of very big sort of YouTubers and, you know, super, I mean, you can sort of tell what he's like from his videos. He's really nice. He's got a, you know, he, he made really good videos. Um, yeah. I couldn't believe what happened to him. Actually. That was, that was really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, that's a shame. He, he, so his personality came out of the screen so so much. It was really cool. Yeah. Uh, these days it's safe to say you've definitely slowed, slowed down and you're kind of output. You're doing these live shows now twice, uh, once or twice a week. Yeah. Uh, so is there any re big reason behind your slowdown? Just, you know, busy with work and family now or what's gonna pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, you know, be being, I think I, I, I was married, but I obviously I, I didn't have a kid. Um, and it was sort of like, it was more sort of on the weekends. My wife is a soccer fan. So she was off watching the soccer for five or six hour marathons on the weekends. And, you know, um, Actually, I, I, you know, I would joke if people realized how much porn my YouTube hobby stopped me watching, 
you know, it was something more creative and constructive. Um, you know, so it was fun to sit there and creatively make videos. But the thing was to, to make those, you know, four-minute videos back in computers back in 2007, you know, it would take 12 hours to render a 480p, um, you know, four-minute video plus all the, you know, and, and you'd find somehow you'd take three or four hours editing. And it used to be like an editing competition. We'd all try to figure out tricks and stuff like that. We'd all, we were obsessed with trying to figure out the best codec to get the best resolution. So you used to spend a lot of time on that. And people who make really polished videos now are totally as they should. They're spending four or five hours editing every video that they post. But when you got my situation, I mean, I don't get my, my, my personal time now doesn't start till like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. I've only got one or two hours that I can, I can really be awake and do anything. So, yeah, for me, I found it was either give it all up um, for not being able to keep up with wanting to make polished videos or to sort of change the format. And the live streaming really works for me because I can just sit down, um, do it, you know, get off. And I'm still putting up contact. I'm still I'm still in touch with everybody. I'm still putting up content. Um, but the, the burden on me to make polished video, you know, edited videos every time uh, isn't so great. So I found it's a, it's a nice way to keep the thing going without killing myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. Uh, I now have two kids. When I no. first came to Japan, I didn't have any kids, and I could watch all your videos and everyone else's videos. But now it's my time is much less than it used to be. I have a solution for that coming. Uh, I am also obsessed with the fact that I, I I really can't keep up with people's videos, and I feel guilty about that as well. Even though the community thing around that isn't so so much anymore, but I'm actually one of my my many side hobby projects uh, that that I always try to have a couple of. I'm actually making a web app at the moment, which is. Uh, Designed to make it really, really easy to catch up with all of your subscriptions with minimum effort. Oh, cool. So look so, out yeah, for so that. That is coming out very soon. Uh, the one thing I like to ask you is, you know, you've been in Pan for I, I, more than 15 years, if I'm not mistaken, at 20, 20 years or so. I got here. I've been on the continuous stint since '99, since March '99. Although I was also here for like half a year in '98. Uh, and on and off before that. So, yeah, about 17 or, geez, 18 years. Yeah. So you were kind of – you've been through the – you've seen Japan coming – you know, the, the how Japan is has changed a lot for you over that time, for sure. Uh, <laughs> it's depressing so, to think about how much it is. <laughs> so what's kind of the biggest, you know, thing change you've seen, I, like especially with how, like, foreigners are seen? And, I mean, there's way more of us now. But is there any kind of difference in how people – you're treated, do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean – it's funny, I, I was reflecting on this yesterday and I was just thinking, I mean, again, I don't want to sound like the, you know, I, I walk 20 miles through the snow kind of story, but, you know, I mean, we, I was using a Netscape browser when I got here. Uh, when I started work at an IT company, um, only 10% of my co-hires had ever even used Windows before. I, at the law firm that I worked at in 1998, half the people still used like old-fashioned word processors, you know, like non-computer typewriters. Um, so... I mean, so much has changed so much, but at the same time, in terms of being a foreigner, I, I do, I do. One thing, I, one thing I've, I kind of like to point out, or that some people have observed, that I think is quite kind of accurate, is the waves of, of foreigners um, that come in. Uh, they talk about how the only foreigners in Japan in the 50s and 60s were like missionaries. Um, then you had the uh, sort of the the religious freaks in the 60s and 70s. You know, the people came over for Zen, to study Zen Buddhism and all that sort of stuff. And then you sort of got the martial arts freaks in the 70s and so on. In the 80s, you had the people who came over for money during the bubble. Um, that's the wave that Victor sort of came in. The people who came when you could, you know, teach English for three hours a day and get, you know, $50,000 a month. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Victor complains that uh, my way from the late 1990s after the bubble ended, we ruined everything for the, for the uh, original foreigners because we flooded the market with cheap Australian and New Zealand labor. And we pretty much <laughs> came over. We were uh, chasing women pretty much. There was no economic benefit, no spiritual benefit. We were just pretty much here for the girls. 
And and it's kind of funny. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. Up, up until my generation, you know, the, the, the bubble people hated us because, you know, we came here, ruined their wages and, and took all the women. Um, you know, the, the people who came for the money are despised by the martial arts and the religious people. Um, but at the same time, so we came here, for my generation, the, the least honorable wave of foreigners that came around that late 1990s period. The, the wave that came after us was the wave of people who came here because they were anime fans. Uh, Which again is like it's like every generation is almost by engineered to be the exact opposite of what the last generation was. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of horrified. I'm like, please stop, stop talking to everybody about how much you love anime. Uh, it's you know you're making us all look bad. But at the same time, <laughs> I, I've come to I, I've come to actually um, yeah. When I first started noticing people were here, and when you ask them why are you here, they're here because they really love anime. I'm like, God, please keep that to yourself. <laughs> it's actually I really respect it because in, in a way I mean they're coming for something that's genuinely cultural and genuinely you know it, it, it sort of has an you know intrinsic value from from Japan they're coming for a higher purpose perhaps than I did um, um, so yeah so they're definitely the types of people who are coming here now are, 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 are different and I actually think that the, the kids are okay now I think they're actually uh, they're kind of cool. There's, there's definitely more of them. The biggest difference for foreigners is how much more accessible um, Japan has become for foreigners. It just, you know, people didn't even think of the idea of there being tourists from other countries coming to Japan. The tourism was very big. Domestic tourism was very big in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, there was a huge domestic tourist infrastructure in Japan. But I remember going to like a tourist information bureau in Tohoku to look for a hotel in Aomori and being told that they, were, they don't give advice to anyone not registered with a, with a Japanese tour company. I'm like, are you kidding? Wow. I was a backpacker and I was told in 1995 that they wouldn't help foreigners at the Tourist Information Bureau. But that's kind of how it was. That was how, how weird it was, the idea of even having foreign tourists. So, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing that we're at, what, 20 million, you know, tourists or something now? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's crazy. And just the fact that there's an infrastructure that people can travel around. I meet people who say, yeah, I went to Japan on a vacation with my family. It still blows my mind to hear people say that. And then I hear that they had a great time and it was the best trip of their life. And I think that's really great. I'm really glad that um, more people can kind of understand. I mean, to my to my parents, it's like I'm living on Mars, um, you know, to try to get them to understand what my life is like here. So I really actually like the fact that more people are understanding why the people who are here, why why you and I love being here so much. I guess I want to know, like, because you know, you've seen, as you said, you've been here so long. You've seen a lot of people come and go. Yeah. What kind of makes what do you think? Is there any kind of traits that make someone have successful, uh, good time in Japan? Because I know you've seen, I'm sure you've seen enough bitter gaijins in your time. Is there any kind of kind of personality that makes someone successful in Japan? Yeah, well, I, so I think my view on this is changing as well. It used to be, I mean, I used to joke we were a bit like a sort of an old cowboy town, you know, full of it was very male heavy, very loner heavy, you know, back, again back in the sort of day, the the Aikawa crowd and the. You would get women who would come over and complain that all the all the other gaijin guys are chasing Japanese girls and Japanese men are scared to talk to them. And it, it made the whole community kind of very, very um, you know, 20 to 30s sort of male heavy. And, and that created kind of a, you know, the you had the bit of gaijin thing and you had sort of within that world. Um, I think people who are sort of naturally good at looking after themselves, who could who could handle a bit of, you know, isolation and you know, people who couldn't really hack it were people who really depended on friends and so on. I think it was a lot tougher back then, but I think that's really changed a lot now. I, I would have told you maybe 10 years ago, um, the best thing is really being um, self-reliant. I mean, self-reliance is a real, it was really the cowboy town sort of thing. It was, um, for me, I, I moved house. Uh, I'm currently living in my 37th house, growing up as an army brat. 
I was used to having all my friends change every year. I was used to changing my surroundings. I preferred being in kind of alien surroundings all the time. I think that made me predisposed to being up for the challenge of isolating myself and being in a company with no other foreigners and pushing myself here. You've got to be a sort of a, a weird type of person to, to sort of go for something like that. Uh -huh. And I think other people who were successful back in the early days when I was here were a bit like that too. Sometimes I'd, when I'd connect with other foreigners who had sort of broken through that five-year barrier and were here sort of as longer term, generally had something that was a little bit weird with about them like that. that again, like they grew up in army families or um, they had something something like that. And you eat a lot of weirdos as well. But I think now people are a lot better. I think you get a lot more sort of more. People are increasingly normal, which I think is a good sign. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think there there is definitely if you if you know if you require a lot of you definitely swimming in the deep end when you're in Japan, right? You do have to you know look after yourself, and there isn't the safety net that you're gonna have in your in your hometown. Uh -huh. But I think it's definitely getting more and more livable. Um, you know, astoundingly so, especially in Tokyo. Uh, I, when I came to Japan, there was two kind of special powers that we had. Yeah. Uh, one was called the Gaijin Smash Power. And oh, the other yeah. was a power a power to turn into Charisma Man. Yes. Uh, do you think those powers have have lessened over time? They must have. Uh, I mean. So I mean, yeah. Again, so I, I was I was one of those self-hating guys in, in the beginning. I, I I still look back and cringe thinking at the way that I I used to behave in my early years. But I think it also set me up for success here. But I was kind of I was one of those foreigners that would like even when I sometimes you see another foreigner and they give you a friendly hello and I'd be like, don't talk to me. <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, what is that? Uh, which is just horrible. But it was just me. You know, I, I'd gotten out of New Zealand. I wanted to. I wanted to. You know, form Japanese friends and all this sort of stuff. And maybe too much. So I was like that. But for me, you know, the people who do the gaijin smash thing, you know, the foreigners who would you know throw their garbage off the balcony and do all the things that would mean that when I come after them and I'm trying to get a, an apartment and they'll say that the last gaijin, you know, wore their shoes inside and were noisy and didn't separate their garbage and stuff, I just think, oh, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. people could get away with it and people still do it. Again, I still think people now are, are a lot better behaved than they used to be uh, back in the old cowboy town sort of era. Um, you would get a lot of people who come over here to drink, be obnoxious, figure that they'll just leave at the end of it and not care, uh, and will make it really difficult for the rest of us. Um, so you sort of get that, but I, I think that happens less now. And in Tokyo, you know, I don't think um, that's quite as extreme. The, the charisma man thing as well. I mean, I guess we've lost our exoticism to some extent. Uh, uh, <laughs> I came at the right time. I think, yeah, I think we did. But there we go. I mean, I, I, I have not been in the position of. Uh, I mean, I used to joke. You know, uh, people would say, "How can I get? How can I, uh, I get girls in Japan?" I said, "You know, go to Roppongi, stand in a bar, and breathe." <laughs> uh, I, I think nowadays, you know, uh, the market's probably a little bit more flooded, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, you've you pretty much all, all lived in the big city of Tokyo, right? Your whole time in Japan. Is there any yeah. reason for that? You know, some people say that's a, it's a different Japan. Oh, yeah. Experience the yeah. Any reason you just stay there just for work? Yeah, I started out in Fukuoka. My first few trips on my school exchange, uh, all, my city, Auckland, in New Zealand, was a sister city of Fukuoka, and we had a lot of exchanges. So I, all my original exchanges and my homestay and everything was in Fukuoka, and I didn't come to Tokyo to just before I started living here. Um, and Tokyo is a very, very different beast, and it really is different. I mean, it's a bit like New York in America, right? It's sort of, you know, um, they're different. They're, they're very different worlds. Um, I think if you want to really learn about Japan, um, if you want to come to Japan as a tourist, if you've got an interest in Japanese culture, I would say come to Tokyo last. Um, but as a place, as a foreigner to live, 
um, to me, I mean, it's always fun. You can always sort of be the foreigner of the village and the, the you know the local English teacher and so on, and have everyone treat you like you're a, you're a new guest for all of your life. <laughs> Um, yeah. in other parts of Japan. But I think Tokyo is still obviously not just economically the biggest and the most exciting city just with the most stuff going on, but it's also the, the really the one place, even compared to Osaka or Nagoya, it still really is the one place in Japan I think where now someone even who looks like me, who clearly stands out all the time, people don't look twice when you speak to them in Japanese. They expect you to speak Japanese. You don't get compliments on the chopsticks. No one says, oh, a foreigner. Um, you know, <laughs> you can basically exist here as a normal person. Um, in ways that you can't really do anywhere else. Uh, plus the fact that Tokyo is just awesome. It's just got everything. So I'm glad sure. for, for living. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I really couldn't imagine living outside of Tokyo, although I, yeah, I have fantastic trips of Japan <laughs> going around on my vacations outside of Tokyo, but I'd always be very glad to be able to come back. Uh, I guess I want to, you know, to kind of wrap things up. What can we expect from you in the future? I mean, you just keep uh, rolling out these live streams or. Any big plans in the future we should know about? I, I have nothing else to do. I've got nothing better to do with my life. I'm going to keep doing the uh, the live streams just because, uh, yeah, and, and the thing is I've kind of, I must admit, one thing about mellowing out um, is originally you're trying to make the best quality videos that you can. You're trying to grow your audience as big as you can. But now I just make what I want to make. Uh, I, I, I will just naturally talk about Japan news and goings on, and I've got a really good uh, crowd of people who sort of follow and interact with me on that. I make live music when I do that, and, you know, I, 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 I do all the stuff that I consider to be fun, and yeah, there's a good community around that, so I'm really happy to continue doing that. Yeah. Um, I'm always doing hobbies, so, you know, um, as my son grows up, I'm looking forward to getting back into my old hobbies of surfing, I'd like to, I, I'm coaching rugby, um, I'm enjoying, I always got nerdy hobbies, including making my web app at the moment, and uh I always got stuff going on. I try to tie everything together as well. So you know, you'll see on my Twitter and my Facebook when I'm doing something that I, I, I want to share. Yeah. Um, but you know, just trying to keep it. I mean, the great again, that's just anything you can think of that you want to do, you can do here. You know, and places like New Zealand, it's just sometimes you know not as easy to do all the things that you want to do. So. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to keep busy. Yeah, awesome. I mean, I, th thanks so much for coming on today. I mean, you are a big part of when I first got to Japan, you know, you kind of take in all the information you can, and I definitely I learned a lot from you. So thanks for coming on today. Keep doing what you're doing. You're down, you helped a lot of people. So yeah, yeah thanks again. Pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the ALT Insider Podcast. For more info on how you can have more fun working in Japan, visit ALTinsider.com. See you next time.